Hey everyone, Dana here. I'll be starting off today's episode. A quick heads up before we start, this episode contains one racial slur that we've left unbeeped. Everyone listening has likely been witnessing the protests across not just the United States, but the world. It's the largest civil rights movement of our time in the U.S., and by some accounts, the largest civil rights movement in all American history, the Black Lives Matter movement. Here at Kerning Cultures, we love telling stories of wonder, of celebration, odes to this beautiful region that we've lived in or are from. But above all else, we're committed to the truth, personal truths included. So today, we'd like to hand it off to Sudanese-American storyteller and podcaster Sad al-Hassan. Her Instagram video diaries during quarantine and then the Black Lives Matter movement are ones I personally listen to closely to help me digest the events around me. I want to say that I hope this isn't a one-off conversation and not a one-off episode or a momentary time where we finally bring racism in the Arab world to the forefront. Internally, we're taking a look at ourselves as a team and outwardly as storytellers. We need to do better and we need to begin with ourselves. This has all been and will continue to be an issue that you and I need to dive into in a more meaningful and a more insightful way outside of just hashtags and social media posts, although those might be helpful as well. I'm Dana Balut, and this is Kerning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and North Africa and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Ahmad Arbery, Brianna Taylor, Finan Burhe, Yasin Muhammad, George Floyd. These are the names of some of the latest victims of anti black racism and police brutality in America. George Floyd's death sparked international outrage, and his last words, I can't breathe, have since become a rallying cry and a devastating echo of the experience of Black people across the globe, and yes, even in the Middle East. Here is the ugly truth. Racism and anti-Blackness in the Arab world is a common practice shrouded in secrecy, and a subject so taboo that many have convinced themselves that it doesn't even exist. But for those of us who live in these societies and who are caught at the intersection of Black and Arab identities, it is no secret. It is an undeniable reality, a part of our formative experience in daily lives, and a scar that today's climate has once again ripped open. I asked people in my community to send me voice notes, sharing some of their personal experiences with racism in the Arab world. This is Omnia. She was raised in Saudi Arabia. So the first um, shared experience, which I've had more than two or three times, definitely. Um, the first is the is the shagala experience. Shagala means maid, by the way. So this is where um, you know, like my dad's Saudi friend, he invites me over for for a dinner sometime, and I go to their house, and then other guests come in, and they automatically assume that. I'm the shagala, and so they start treating me like the shagala, handing me their coats. So that's that's generally like the broad idea behind it. I've also been in situations where they don't know I speak Arabic, they don't know I understand all the crap that they're saying. So um, I've been in countless situations where I've been in an elevator with other people, with other Arabs, 
and they would say they would comment things about my hair and the way that it, my hair is like oh شوفي دي شعره ناعم or oh شوفي دي بشرطها فيها نضاء like something about these comments that they're making and the way that it's been so repetitive it's always been a case of like oh look at her she's different she's not like the other black folks oh look at her hair all oh, all oh, look at this so um i've always gotten these co- sort of comments a lot and over the time i sort of learned how to you know control my facial experience space um expressions and let them like say whatever they want to say and then by the end of it come out and say by the way i understood all the crap that you were saying maybe let's not do that let's not talk about other people in in in, in a language that you presume they don't speak and i think the last one that i want to address is the normalization of saying things like ya khala ya abda isweda the term khala or khal is a derogatory word for black person often used in the arab gulf abda means female slave and soda or sweda are different variations of the term black akin to blacky in english you know etc to that effect and i've been in situations where i have been called that mid conversation unprovoked people have said like oh inti khala inti abda inti and i don't i don't let it fly by personally like i will call you out for it because there's no need for you we're having a civil conversation there's no need for you to make a remark about my skin tone so contrary to me i have my other friend who's kuwaiti but she's black kuwaiti and it's so funny how when people call her ya khala she just sort of laughs it off like shrugs it and that fascinates me because how could you be so accepting of someone calling you khala especially when you know like you know the the connotations around that word how are you normalizing using it Here's my friend Yasin. He grew up in the UAE. So my experience with racism started pretty early. I was the only African kid in the whole school and pretty much I was ostracized from the beginning, you know. Um growing up I had to go through a lot of bullying. Um I've been called names. It was mostly verbal. I've been called a uh, black ass, blacky, um nigger and th- those were from my classmates. During my holidays uh, I started you know doing part-time jobs. So I remember applying to this place and I had a phone interview. So the next day I come, they call me in. and the woman is kind of surprised so she was like oh i thought you were white i'm like why she was like oh be- because of your accent cuz I, i apparently i talked like a white dude so i didn't even know how to react <laughs> to that and i didn't really say anything cuz i just wanted a job i wanted the money so after that i think one of the, i think they chose me because it was a call center company so i've been calling clients so i think that's why they chose me because i had a really white accent <laughs> to them and apparently it, it attracted more customers and this is iman who spent her formative years in several countries across the middle east my biggest insecurity like one story is like my biggest insecurity was my hair growing up just because 
like everyone around me had like straight or wavier hair and I just had very curly thick hair so I remember going to Kofed with my mom or going to the hairdresser with my mom and just every single time the hairdressers would complain about my hair expeditiously like both in Lebanon and in Egypt that was one thing and I remember um like a guy that uh, one of my like really close guy friends um he would tell me he was like oh like you should always you should straighten your hair it's so much nicer when it's straight for by the time I moved to Egypt like for my last two years of high school I got to the point where I was basically straightening it all the time it got to the point like I started going natural three years ago that's how that's how recent my journey was because I just was so insecure about my hair because people like arrows made me so insecure about my hair an outright racist experience well one of many was I, I was in grade 10 so I was about 15 16 years old and this was in Lebanon and this guy we were we were just fighting back and forth like he was just being a horrible person and we like the banter like the insults were getting very personal and then it got to a point where like I said something that struck a nerve I don't remember what it was that I said but I said something that struck a nerve and he was like oh why don't you go clean my toilet or clean my bathroom And finally, Inas, who grew up in the Arab Gulf. So I grew up in Bahrain, which is a very small island in the Middle East. Bahrainis are one of the kindest and welcoming people I've ever met. And that's the thing, right? Because we often kind of associate racism with unkind people. You know, kind, smile, and welcoming people are never racist. I've always heard that kids are colorblind, but I'm not too sure about that either. We are threatened by what or who looks different. And being the only black kid in the whole class and sometimes in the whole school made me different. And different at the time was bad. I was often beaten up by other kids. I was told black was evil and dirty. My skin looked like mud and poop. I was black because I probably never showered and sued and dirt accumulated on my skin over time and made me black. I believed all of it. The voices you heard are all from Sudan a country that for the last few hundred years has been trapped in the throes of both white and Arab supremacy. Of course, Sudanese people are not the only ones who suffer the effects of Arab racism and anti-blackness, a fact proven by the many Afro-Arab voices that have spoken out recently, including Saudi influencer Abir Sindir and Afro-Palestinian actress Maryam Abu Khalid, to name a few. However, we Sudanese do find ourselves often singled out by mainstream Arab media. Major television networks like NBC have a long-standing record of producing and airing content that specifically targets the Sudanese personality, or their version of it anyway. It's for this reason, for example, that many Sudanese consider Ramadan, which is an important period for TV in the region, to be, quote, Musim al-Unsuriya, or racism season, a term most recently used by comedian Mustafa Jurri in a video on the topic. As I say these words, I'm sure some images are probably standing out in your mind. And if they aren't, then that in itself is telling. We've all seen it. Actors in blackface depicting buffoonish characters dressed in what is meant to be traditional Sudanese garb, speaking in broken Arabic, obviously meant to mimic the Sudanese dialect, all while draped lazily across a chair or bed. Or maybe it's a female role performed by an actress, also in blackface, portraying the crass maid or some other demeaning trope. Sound familiar? 
In recent years, social media has been very helpful, serving as a conduit for our voice, giving Sudanese the power to not only call out these racist portrayals, but also to hold the specific parties accountable. On a personal note, there is satisfaction in knowing that your voice is finally reaching its intended target in a direct and unprecedented way. But these incidents have also highlighted that Unfortunately, Arab societies are still painfully unprepared to confront and tackle the issue of their ingrained racism. When Kuwaiti actor Hassan al-Ballam was dragged online for his racist portrayal of a Sudanese character in 2018, he released an apology in which he wrote, There are some people who misunderstood me, and others went far beyond the limits to criticize me. The actor did promise to stop doing what he called impersonations. And that was slightly better than his Egyptian counterpart, Shayma Sif, who took to Twitter in 2019 following outrage in response to her blackface performance for the prank show Shek Labaz to tell objectors, I'm a comedian and my role was a comic one and I'd wished you'd taken the matter in a lighthearted way. But it's not just celebrities. Any discussion surrounding Arab racism, whether online or off, is invariably met with a ton of responses meant more to gaslight than to actually engage. Phrases like, it was just a joke, you're too sensitive, or we are Muslim and there is no racism in Islam, and the inevitable Sayyidina Bilal name drop that comes after it, are almost reflexively lobbed back at any criticism. Responses like, but Sudanese people are the kindest, and... I can't be racist. All my teachers growing up were Sudanese, are so commonly used that they might as well be predictive text. For us, they're part of a top five list of responses to expect when calling out Arab racism, headed by the infamous, their skin may be black, but their hearts are white and pure. These responses are a dangerous form of coded language, loaded phrases that honestly would need their own episode to unpack. But at the heart of it, they serve primarily to shut down criticism and dismiss our daily lived experience as members of these Arab societies. On Instagram, Sudanese artist Inas Satid has been sharing a new series addressing the topic of racism. She has made stunning digital portraits based on her own personal experiences, which she further details in the captions. In one, she writes, I'm not sure if I can count the number of times I was automatically assumed to be the maid based on the color of my skin. One time that I remember very well, I was invited to a wedding when I was living in Bahrain. So I arrived there and the family who were greeting guests at the door kept looking at me up and down, clearly confused on what I was doing there, especially when I reached out to shake their hands. After a long moment of awkwardness, I retracted my hand and found myself gestured to be seated at the maid's table. Inas's experience eerily overlaps with one of my own. In late 2008, at the age of 23, I moved back to settle in Khartoum, Sudan. My move coincided with a cousin's wedding, and as I was the only cousin in our age group who wasn't working or in school, I assumed the role of maid of honor, assisting the bride in the many prep activities leading up to her wedding. The day after the event, the women of my family were gathered, having conversation with some guests who had come to give their congratulations to the mother of the bride. I was sent out by one of the aunties to get a glass of water, and when I returned, a new guest had arrived. As I presented the glass on a tray to my aunt, the woman took the opportunity to examine me. My skin color was noticeably darker than everyone else present, and I wasn't dressed in the typical fashion of a young Sudanese woman at that time. The guest then turned to my aunt 
and with a bemused smile asked, Oh, how cute. Is this your maid? An awkward silence filled the room for a few moments before my aunts, in that typical Sudanese over-accommodating way, began laughing to ease the tension. I have to admit, I didn't know how to react myself. I just hurried out of the room, tray in hand. I was afraid my face would give away the shame I felt, not at being mistaken for a maid, but at being ostracized from my family in this way. This is Inas again. There is something that is different when your own people are treating you like you don't belong, you know, because you don't look right, because you're too dark or because uh, you might be too African and you're supposed to be more of an Arab and you're supposed to be this and that. For example, if I go to a wedding and someone out loud says that, oh, she from Zimbabwe, because which, of course, really highlights how my own people look at me. And this is how it's been throughout most of my life in Sudan. You know, and um, whether to be deemed too African to board uh, a plane or whether that, oh, don't uh, take this picture next to this Halabiya girl because then like you're going to look even darker, you know, or don't you want to use this bleaching cream because, you know, like you don't want like your skin to look dirty, right? Like don't you want to look clean or don't you want to look beautiful, you know? Or most of the comments is like, um, you know, like you have nice features, too bad you're that dark, you know. So all these comments and all those things are just things that show how we look at each other as a culture or as people, you know, because um, it's not, it's very complicated because at the end of the day, we are a culture that we are Arabs, we're Afro-Arabs. We're African who speak Arabic, but at the same time, not comfortable about being African and not entirely comfortable about being Arabs because even the Arabs look down on us a little bit, not a little bit, a lot. And there is this whole dynamic that we're really struggling to understand and to, I don't know, and to kind of navigate. Arab supremacy and anti-Black racism has permeated our lives in such an all-encompassing way that it's become inescapable, even in Sudan. My home, whose name translates to Land of the Blacks, is ironically only now starting to get reacquainted with its Blackness, and with that, to face the uncomfortable reality of its own internalized racism. Sudan has yet to truly unpack its colonial history and over the span of five decades and two regimes has lived under an imposed and violently enforced policy of Arabization that has served to separate Sudan from any association with the African continent, preferring instead to play up the country's Arab identity and present it as the sole iteration of Sudaneseness, despite its visible and undeniable ethnic and tribal diversity. The policy greatly benefited regime leaders and their Arab allies, but left the population utterly fragmented in the aftermath. In the last 30 years especially, Sudan has been a battleground of identity politics. Our armaments, our tribalism, colorism, and our relative proximity to Arabness. To say that we suffer an identity crisis is an understatement, and one that doesn't even begin to communicate our bloody history and the destruction of homes, lives, and the very fabric of our society that has occurred in the desperate pursuit of belonging to the Arab world. In response to a recent Twitter thread discussing racism in Sudan, one Sudanese user wrote, My father's side of the family calls me khadim, or servant. My mother's side of the family calls me halabiya, 
or white. And in Saudi Arabia, where I grew up, they call me Abda, or slave. This experience is not unique to Sudan. Black people across the MENA region, whether African immigrants or Afro-Arab citizens, bear the crushing weight of the collective denial of the societies in which they live. Whether because of inability or unwillingness, the refusal to tackle head-on the issue of racism and anti-Blackness in our communities leaves a sizable portion of our people ostracized, isolated, and feeling unwanted. Not only that, it has a direct impact on every facet of their lives, on their access to education, to healthcare, to opportunities, on their mental and emotional well-being, on the very quality of the lives they lead. It is high time to relieve them of that weight and to take a long, hard look at our societies and the ways in which we personally have, wittingly or otherwise, contributed to the oppression of our relatives, our neighbors, our classmates and co-workers, friends, and fellow community members. Rip off the band-aid, because the fact of the matter is this. Racism is not a foreign problem. It is a local one. And while you put up your fists for a more equal and just world, you should also remember that change starts at home. This episode was produced by Sarah Hassan with editorial support from Tamara Rasamni, Zena Duwaydar, Hiba Fisher, Alex Atak, and myself, Dana Balut. Sound design by Mohamed Khreizat and fact-checking by Zena Duwaydar. Bella Ibrahim is our marketing manager. And Kerning Cultures is produced by the Kerning Cultures Network. If you want to follow more of Sada's work, you can follow her on Instagram at bsonblast. We'll be back next Friday with a new story. Thanks for everyone listening. Stay safe. Until next time, take care all. Bye.